anywhere, cause it's your kind of car. The Vauxhall Chevette is whatever you want it to be. Everybody and welcome to a new edition of Talking About Cars. I'm Randy Cardoon. Everybody has a car story. Coming up later, I'll be talking to the man who runs the auctions from Russo and Steel, Drew Alcazar, and find out when he knew he was a car guy. But first, with the big news this week of Chris Evans' exit from Top Gear UK, I caught up with the Stig, or at least one of them. From 2000 to 2010, Ben Collins was the Stig, the mysterious driver whose face no one saw. Ben was at the 4th of July show at CBS's studios in Studio City, just north of Los Angeles, the car show put on by the Television and Motion Picture Car Club, TMPCC. Now, Ben has a new book out simply called How to Drive. He was just a race car driver when he was contacted about being the Stig, or was it the other way around? Well, I approached them uh, because it looked like a great job. There was um, a Stig before me that was in a black suit. He wasn't there for very long because he kept taking his helmet off and getting his pitch taken. So, um, But I, I'd seen this character on television. I, I grew up as a huge Star Wars fan. Uh, maybe that was part of it, the, uh, the appeal, but it just looked like a, the best job in the world. So I, I put, re- sent my resume. They took me to the track. Um, I beat the outgoing guys' times, but they didn't tell me that. So I was kind of left on the cliffhanger in, t- in real Top Gear style. And several months later, I just got a phone call saying, can you come to the track tomorrow? And I said, yeah. And that was it. That was, that was my first day on the show. Um, so that, that was the style of Andy Woolman, the executive producer. And uh, in that way, he had, everybody was always on the edge of their seats at work uh, because he never knew what was coming the next day. And, yeah, he, he kept you guessing. So you really had no idea from day to day what you'd be driving or in what track or in anything like that? No, and I, in a strange way, I learned to love that. Um, uh, uh, they were planned and chaotic at the same time. And that was part of the brilliant thing with Top Gear because they were incredibly flexible. And, you know, I learned we, we would be able to shoot something that would look really cool with a really small amount of guerrilla sort of ground crew. Um, and the setup was unbelievably fast. I mean, it would frighten film producers to see how, how much we would do with so little. And in a short space of time, because everybody was just on it and, uh, you know, you eat a sandwich, you'd, you'd get on, you know, you, you'd rushing between one sort of setup and the next. And that's how we did it. And uh, we used to make a lot of it up on the fly, certainly in the early years, you know, and that, I think, again, you, you picked that up. Well, I love that part. And, you, and the whole show and sometimes seems like it was right. For people who watch Top Gear, the BBC version, it almost seems like half the stuff they do is on the fly. What was your favorite on the fly moment where one minute you didn't know it was going to happen, the next thing you went, I'm going to do what? And then it worked. Well, one I always, well, there was lots, but um, one of the funnier ones happened uh, just outside Edwards Air Force Base. And I, I mean, I love going to these remote places and, and some of the best films we did were in America. Um, and we were there and I'd read all about that. You know, I read Chuck Yeager's biography. I loved all this about aliens landing there. And so they wanted this Chuck Yeager scene of kind of the stig coming out of the mirage out in the you know in the dry lake there so we pulled in and like i say it, it was guerrilla tactics we would you know we were just rolling into it uh, we had an american um, producer with us you know he was kind of helping trying to help us not get in trouble or get shot he was pleading with us not to go out there he said look this is serious this is edwards air force base it's where they have the spy planes you can't just turn up and go out but anyway so we did so out i went with the white suits and helmet on and really at that time, Top Gear was not known in America, so no one knew what the Stig was really over here. And within about two minutes of us turning up and filming, along came the SWAT team, the Edwards Air Force Base guys came out with their assault rifles unslung, looking pretty serious. 
and I had to come in and they were staring at me like I was some sort of Korean spy um, because they're like and who is this guy and I couldn't speak I didn't want to talk to them I didn't want to get get the you know so I was kind of just trying to hide so you were contractually obligated you couldn't talk it wasn't a contract I mean I just I knew that if um, you know if the identity got out that was the end of the secret that was therefore the end of the job and so I was very careful um, and, and besides, the, the soldiers looked a little bit antsy, so I, I thought it was best that an American voice was talking to them at that particular time. Um, anyway, they escorted us away in the, in, in the blacked-out um, cabs, and uh, we, we, we got a great shot and managed to keep the footage. There wasn't any concern you might be an alien or anything like that? I think they were thinking about it, but nobody... Unfortunately, <laughs> there were no rubber gloves involved, and uh, I just, you know, no, none of that, so just a fingerprint. Take me back when you were growing up, when you first realized that you were kind of a car guy i mean was this something from your folks cars like what did they drive i mean what what do you remember first strangely i had well i thought i had no interest in cars as a kid and um i wanted to be a fighter pilot that was it and largely that that love of speed came from being a passenger with my dad so my dad was at warp 10 everywhere every uh, occasion in the car involved some kind of passing maneuver that would defy gravity and physics and um, he was great fun. I mean, we had... Um, this is just him driving from, like, point A to point B. Not that he was a racer, but he was kind of, uh, how we say, a speed demon per chance? Absolutely. Yeah, D Dad was fully lit, uh, um, fully on it, on, on every trip. And um, he used to come down our drive, pull the handbrake, we'd skid out onto the road and all this sort of stuff. And um, What was he driving at the time, remember? Yeah, it was the... I was get this wrong because I I think it's the it's the Rover SD the SD1 um, anyway it's the, okay. it was the wedge shaped nose it looked like a Ferrari uh, Daytona had that kind of nose that's probably giving it more credit than it's due um, but it was an amazing car really the British equivalent of the Mustang back in the back in the late 70s that was our version and it was a fantastic car and um, and he drove the wheels off this thing so I love that and I I. Got my, I convinced my mother to let me ride the ride on lawnmower when I was five. My legs didn't reach the brakes. I mean, I crashed it straight away. Um, so I loved all this. And, and then we grew up on a farm and I had access to all that kind of equipment. But really the first time I knew I, I was absolutely addicted was the first day my, my dad gave me an opportunity to test a single seat race car. I sat in the car and life literally was never the same again. I, I instantly knew that's what I had to do. How do you make the progression? I mean, you eventually became a race car driver, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a it's a very difficult path because these cars cost a lot of money, especially the way I drove them at the beginning. I, I wrote, I destroyed three cars in the space of five races, and um, then I mean, because I I had and I you know I had no fear at all, and I had no experience to know what were, what kind of maneuver was allowable. And, and the worst thing happened is I led my first race, so. Um, I, you know, I thought, Why is that the worst thing? Why is that the worst thing? Uh, I, I, you know, I, I competed at different things. I grew up in California swimming and uh, competing out here. And it's a psychological thing. And if you think you can win from the, from the get-go, there's a, you, you, a lack of respect comes with that. Um, so I led the first race. Great. I, I, I'm, the, I'm the next Mario Andretti, so I should win all of these races. Um, and that's not how it works. And you have to learn um, sometimes you can't win. There are races you cannot win and you have to take the best result you can get. Uh, and work out why you weren't in a position to win that one to win the next one. And uh, that I learned that the hard way because I'm stupid, but it sank in eventually. Yeah, but it works for you. I figure, what the hey? Your first car, what was your first car? Honda, a Honda Civic, a Honda CRX actually. So it was a very, I was very spoiled. I was very lucky to get this car. I had a, um, some sponsorship from a car dealership and it had this amazing 1.6 
um, uh, injection. It was a VTEC engine, so the variable valve timing, which kind of almost worked like a turbo. It, it would just open up as you got more revs. This thing loved being revved hard, and I loved revving it hard. Um, so the harder you pushed it, the more power you got. Um, front wheel drive, two seat thing. I crashed that as well. Um, I'm afraid to say it was shocking, but um, I loved it. Yeah, it was a great car. How long did you have that car before you crashed it? One year. So I was the insurance statistic waiting to happen. This is partly why I've written this book. You know, I've made so many dumb mistakes, um, and uh, I'd, I'd like to think that I could share some wisdom from these, these silly things. You're referring to your new book, which is called How to Drive, Ben Collins, Driver for Top Gear, NASCAR, and the James Bond movies. Uh, among the things you talk about in the book is you think the way we're learning is just not the way we should be learning. Like for example, when I grew up back in the you know in the Stone Age, uh, we had the schools do driver ed. How are we learning wrong? I, I think that the schools doing driver ed is exactly the right thing to have. That's a great starting point. Um, and sadly, they don't do that anymore because of the cutbacks and all that. But still. It, yeah, it makes it makes no sense because because actually there's a lot of things on the car that has that have improved in terms of safety, and actually it's not as much the tire. Sorry, the car is it's the the tires have improved. Tires now are so much they're unbelievably more enhanced than they were ten years ago, let alone fifteen or twenty. So the cars that um, fossils like me and you grew up on with when Fred Fred Flintstone was a was a boy. Um, they handled, it was a lot harder to handle because they had, the tyres had so much less grip. Now, these things that you're driving on now, they grip better not just when it's dry, but when it's raining. You've got tyres that are unbelievably capable in the snow and ice. So I'm more, in, I'm more of an advocate of, of that tyre than a lot of the, the junk that we get, um, a, the ABS, all the track. Yeah. The, the, the cars being heaped with technology, in fact, that really are detracting from humans paying attention. And um, I'm, I'm all for deploying the brain as much as possible and, and making the most of these, the, the, the good tech, like the tires, that, that, how they work, where they work. So you're saying basically the cars we have today are almost too technologically sound than they should be for somebody trying to learn how to drive a car? Yes, because uh, the great thing about some of the so-called old cars was the, uh, the power steering was hydraulic, you had a piece of metal that joined the steering wheel to the tires. And, and it's like a divining rod. You can feel the road, you feel vibration. You can feel the vibration stop when you go on black ice, because on black ice you don't hear anything, you don't feel anything. You know you've gone from black top tarmac concrete to, oh, this isn't that, this is snow and ice, or whatever it is. Um, you, you have an intuitive feel. Uh, human beings are amazingly well balanced. You, before you, you know, slip over on, the, on a wet bathroom floor, you feel it with your toes. That's exactly how it should be in a car. That's what you can feel with with um, real power steering, and it and it's something that's lost with electric power steering and E-Pass. This is the modern system they put on. I don't want to get too technical, but cut manufacturers are using this because it's it, it's very slightly more fuel efficient. But um, hard. Let me put it this way: so you are now the we're going to adopt you the king since you're from England. We're going to adopt you the king of of how to teach the world to drive. What's the first thing you do? Switch your brain on, I guess. Um, <laughs> you know, it's um. Driving is so much fun, and uh, really, the driving test is just the first step. And it, it, I, I talk about it in the book as well that it, we get less hours in the, as a you know, build-up to the test than a, than a guy who, to, to become a barista at Starbucks. They get more hours training to, to work an espresso machine. So acknowledge the fact that we don't know it all, and, and I'm still learning, and, and I love learning, and it's great. And that driving is an adventure. So set off with that um, sort of attitude, and then the rest will follow. And, and it's all about 
learning how to look further ahead, how to be smoother. Because if you can look further ahead, anticipate what's happening, you burn a lot less fuel, you won't have a crash, and you're gonna have a better time and your passengers won't be sick. So I think all of these things fit together. I like that. And if your passengers don't get sick, you don't have to clean up the car afterwards. You know, it's a win-win, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. And, and it's learning the environment. Um, so the stuff I've written about is, uh, is stuff that you don't get taught at the test. It's how to be smooth with the steering, how to hold the steering wheel, the basic stuff, all the way through to how to make a, a passing maneuver and drive on snow and ice and, and do stuff that, um, that you may not get a, you know, you, you make, it may come up once in a lifetime, like a tire blowout or something. But knowing what to do, being pre-armed is, is pre-warned. How did you transition from driving like you do, the racing that you did, and getting in the movie business where the next thing you know you're doing stunt driving for James Bond and eventually the Stig? How did that happen? Well, racing is controlling something that's on the edge of control and, and oftentimes you, you, the car will slip away and you have to react very quickly to, to do that. It's a, and it's a mental game. So we're really programming our brains, same as a golfer. That shot that he makes, he made the shot before he swings the, the club and that's the approach that works in all sports but especially driving as well it's a very mental thing um, and there's a discipline to it with stunts uh, these days it I mean in the, the good old days I mean those guys were just incredibly brave and strong and they, the stuff they did is it, it is unbelievable so stunts have evolved now they're much more technical we rehearse things uh, for months in advance and with so the driving thing was a, a natural extension of the skills I've learned in racing but it's actually very different because Stunt driving is all about making the car look as animated and as chaotic as possible at a lower speed. Um, and uh, the cars aren't going, they are going fast at times, but really it's all about being spectacular. So um, it's- What a much was the first opportunity you had? Was it the Bond movies? What, what was the first and how did that come about? Well, my filming career began with a, com with a TV commercial, um, and, uh, w which was b a bizarre thing. And I got thrown in and end up, ended up kind of coordinating the sequence because the, tra the track was covered in snow and the producer was crying and they couldn't film and I said well look you couldn't pay the money to get snow on a track when, when we're here to film on it so we did this amazing film and the car was sliding around and, and they, they ran it worldwide um, you know movies and everything so that was my that was my beginning and I realized how creative the whole process was uh, and I couldn't wait to get involved with with TV so I worked with with Top Gear and then I just thought oh, I've got to work on car chases so I got in touch with the production team at, at Bond, um, Gary Powell, who's a stunt coordinator there, and uh, it was, was great of him to give me an opportunity to, to, to try me out. And that's been it, really. Uh, you know, since then, I've been going from one film to the next. So the car chase at the beginning on the snow, what product was that? Do you remember? It was a GM car. Um, it was the one and only, the two-seater. It was called a VX220, which I don't know if it came to the States, but it was, dare I say it, it was kind of a Lotus. Um, <laughs> Uh, with uh, with a GM badge on it, uh, um, but yeah, it was a great, it was a really fun car. Uh -huh. So then you went around and eventually did the Bond stuff. And for those who may not have heard, remind us what you did uh, as far as driving the car in the Bond movies. Yeah, I've worked on the last three. So I, I started with Quantum of Solace, which was this really high-speed car chase around Lake Garda. I was driving an Aston Martin that was worth 180,000 pounds, and we had 12 of those that all got smashed to pieces. So that was incredible, and that was the first really big. I mean, I've worked on one before that, but but the Bond was a huge breakthrough. Um, Skyfall uh, was in the Land Rover and a Jaguar that was sliding around, and on the recent one, Spectre, um, I wasn't on it for as long, but again, I got to, to double um, Daniel for that and for, for a short time, and uh, you know, they're the best. I mean, how much fun is that though in the long run? It's amazing. I grew up as a kid watching this stuff for 30 years, and I never expected I'd end up. Um, being able to do something like that um, really I had to pinch myself 
and, and it's the pinnacle of these stunt guys are amazing. You're, you're working with the best in the business from fighting to bikes. And it's a real privilege to be asked to join that very elite crew. Okay, so you got a chance to do Stig, uh, the Stig, a guy who nobody really knew who he was. As I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that was all part of the gig, right? I mean, they knew, they basically said to you that you're going to do this, but no one's really going to ever know who you are. Yeah, that, that was the idea. Um, this was, and it, it's kind of fun because this was before the camera phone. It was before Wikipedia, before YouTube, all of which started after I took the job. And so we, we did things that would later kind of come back to haunt us. And, and, and I remember at the time just thinking, this doesn't feel right. But I did an interview with the helmet on. And I thought, where is this going to go? And one day, three years later, it appeared on YouTube. And everybody that I raced with recognized the voice. So, and then they, these guys are plugging it into Wikipedia. And we kept changing it, saying, no, it's Damon Hill. It's Michael Schumacher. So we did as much subversion as we could. But after eight years, um, actually, it was the TV guide that outed me. Our own, so BBC made Top Gear and it was the BBC radio TV guide. Did a front page thing, who is the Stig? And you turned it over and there was a picture of me in my biography. So it was it was unhelpful. Um, and uh, that, that was the beginning of the end, really. Have you bought a uh, TV guide since from the uh, from England? No, I've, I've only, I've burnt every single one I can find. <laughs> and we can understand why that could happen. We're talking to Ben Collins here and talking about cars. All right, so, you weren't around when the former machination of the BBC show left. When you first heard about Jeremy and the whole bit about suddenly he left, what was the thought that went through your mind? I guess, um, well, I, I sort of felt we peaked um, some years before that. Um, and uh, I, I left in 2010, and so it wasn't Sour Grapes. It was, uh, the producer of the show actually said, we should have killed this in 2008 which was quite funny and he said that while he was still making the show and it's very hard to stop something that's incredibly fun and successful um, which is why they didn't stop until it came to an end but I think in a weird way it was a relief for everybody I don't know if that's the right word but I think it was calling time it was it was it was sad the way it happened but it gave everybody a break um, it's allowed for better or worse everybody to take a breather the audiences they, you know, they get two shows now that, that Top Gear has continued in, on the BBC in a different form. It, whether that's popular or not, we'll, we'll, you know, it's it's had a bumpy start. Um, and the the original trio, they're going to appear on Amazon. But the the Top Gear that I think peaked in the late 2000s is gone. And and um, you know, but we can all look back on it and we we still watch the reruns. Oh, we do. I mean, there are BBC America has them all the time, and and people talk about the Amer the England version versus the American version. There are how many versions in the world of Top Gear? Oh, good question. Well, actually, they've started a French one now, and I love that because uh, the Stig is called Le Stig. Um, so that's cool. <laughs> there was one in Korea, but that I think that ended badly because when they had an Apache helicopter that crashed uh, during film. I mean, they're, they're every, yeah, there's an Australian, or there was, there's one out here in the States. So maybe there's eight or nine. They, they just canceled that one, too. Right. So. But yeah, life goes on, and you know, there's um, there's talent there. The, the guys from the Top Gear USA are great. They'll they'll find another TV show that will that will suit them. So, anyway, you know. Have you seen the new one from England, the uh, the Chris Evans and uh, Matt LeBlanc one? Yeah, I, I think um, it's definitely got potential. I think LeBlanc is really fun, um, and uh, there's, they've got they've they found some new young presenters that are going to work well. Chris Evans has um, has stood down today, so you know that. Again, this this thing's a, it's a cycle, and I don't think anyone would have expected the new Top Gear to have jumped straight into the pole position of popularity that the previous one had right off the bat. It's going to take time for that audience to grow.
And they've got the one that's coming up on Amazon. I'm not quite sure when the date is they're going to release. Have they contacted you about reenacting the Stig, but not the Stig? Because obviously, you know, they know who you are already. No, no, not for that one. And um, I, I filmed a fun thing with, with those guys when they left Top Gear um, and they were still promoting their live tour, which was quite fun. And they kind of rediscovered me. Uh, in a, we did a, a, a film for the live, live pieces there. But no, I've not worked on this new one, and um, I'm intrigued to see what the format's going to be like. Absolutely. I think a lot of people are. When you were doing that event that they had where they brought all the stars in and they had everybody drive in the cheap vehicle, uh, whatever it may be, a Chevy or, or, a, or a Vauxhall or whatever it was, um, they brought in several stars and they had varying degrees of success. Did you have to work with any of them off, off camera? Did you show them uh, how to drive or, or help them with their runs? Yeah, all of them. So um, I would uh, treat every individual as an individual. They're, everybody has different needs. Some are overconfident, some need, need boosting, some need moral and psychological guidance. Um, you know, it was a full full spectrum and it was great fun. So. You know, uh, Who really got it that you didn't think would be able to get it? Um, Who surprised you the most? You think? As a trend, the girls did better than the boys. So that's that was that's interesting. And in that, you know, maybe it's not what you'd expect to hear, but girls don't have a, they have less of an ego. They pick up things. They, they, girls will stop and ask for directions. Guys won't. That's just, it's just a male thing. Guys think they can drive. They think they're great in bed. Well, it's not always true. And so trying to tell a guy that he's he's bad at either of those those um, two favourite sports doesn't always go down well. So you have to try to address these things carefully. And the, and the best the best drivers were always the ones that could listen and could change. And and, in, and if you can change, you can learn. I'm just thinking off the top of my head. Tom Cruise went in there and, and nailed it one year. I don't remember which year, but he was in there, and I think he had the fastest time or something like. That. He yeah he he was so determined. I mean, if I told him to drive through a tree and then a, and a brick wall, he would have done that. If it was if it meant a faster time, um, he was brilliant and uh, the most focused guy we had the entire way. Saying that, um, when they were both there and it was raining, Cameron Diaz um, was faster in the rain. Then it, it and then, uh, but it, you can't. I'm not. I'm not saying you can compare the two because the, the rain was different for Tom. It rained harder when he was in the car. Then it dried out, and he got to really show what he was, you know, capable of because um, it was a dry track. He can you can compare his times then with the other other people, um, and he was amazing. And uh, he really, really just drew in, like you know, everything that I could uh, give him. It was it was really incredible to watch. Producers were terrified because I kept telling him how to go faster and faster, and they're just saying the insurance we, we can't, you know, the premium is huge. Just to stop telling him how to go faster, and he kept he kept learning, and he cut the corner where I asked him to, and it, that's when the car went up onto two wheels. And that's right, I remember. Anybody else, any racing driver would have come off the gas, and he I could hear him just pushing the gas to go faster. Who got the closest to wrecking that you remember or did? Tom Cruise. <laughs> So that car was not far off going on its roof, and um, it was great to watch. I mean, other than him, there were a few. That was the Kia, and there were a few before that, and we had a Suzuki that was terrible. And the wheels routinely fell off. So Lionel Richie, the wheel fell off with him. Literally Tra fell off. Yeah, it fell off. It, went, it overtook him. It went past him. He, he, hit, he pressed the brakes for the first corner. The wheel fell off, and the wheel passed him on the inside and rolled off into the, into the greenery. So yeah. How does that happen? How does the wheel just fall off? It, it falls off when the car is badly made. That's uh, to put it mildly. It happened three times. The wheel fell off. 
So, um, yeah, we never really, I, I wouldn't recommend that particular car, but um, yeah. Ben Collins joining us here, a driver for Top Gear and uh, the James Bond movies, has his new book out. Uh, is the, I assume the book's in stores. It is, yeah. This is special edition for America. So we've, um, um, you know, the, the laws of physics really apply globally, but America's got a very unique um, driving infrastructure. The roads are very special. So I, I did, a, you know, all my research um, for the, really for the US driver to how to get the most out of their car. Uh, and learn about the stuff that you just don't learn when you're passing the driving test. And uh, I think really it, it's good for anybody, whether you're 16 or 86. There's always something you don't know. I've tried to cover all the bases and, um, and yeah, try and uh, make people a little safer, but have a, have a more fun journey. You were doing NASCAR. Remind me when you were driving NASCAR. Well, I came over here. I, I won the European Championship and I got an opportunity to come over to the U.S. in um, 2004 with Texaco, which is great. So I raced at a NASCAR support race with ASA. Um, and uh, that was an incredible experience. And then I got to test with Red Bull for the, with the Cup team. Uh, so that was it. It was a very brief encounter, and uh, but but I loved it. And I raced for two seasons, and uh, got you know really was able to sort of push the envelope out here, which was fantastic. So we always ask the question about cars, and you, you mentioned what your first car was. Was there any car that you've ever had that you wish you could get back? That I owned? Uh, no, actually. <laughs> I've, I'm still chasing down the ultimate car. I can see a few of them in this lot here. There's a Camaro over there that keeps winking at me. Um, I need to try and get that. Um, no, I, I mean, the, the cars I've driven, that I've owned, uh, I've, I've enjoyed them, but I've never owned something I would think of as a dream car. You don't need to go back there again. What's the number one car on the Ben Collins list of cars I want someday? I'd love to have the Porsche Carrera GT. That's pretty awesome. Um, but it's probably too expensive, and uh, and really, I would like something from the 70s, like this, like this Camaro, uh, or something from the 80s that's a little bit crazy, um, like a Peugeot 205 GTI. So it's a hot hatch. So quirky, quirky and scary is what I really want. Race car and stunt driver Ben Collins, aka the Stig from Top Gear. Drew and Josephine Alcazar, the power couple behind the Russo and Steel auto auctions. During their recent show at Newport Beach, I asked him just how young he was when he realized he was a car guy. Uh, that's easy. I was born with that, playing with my uh, matchbox and my Hot Wheels. Uh, I always had my case with me. It traveled with me all times. Uh, I begged my folks to pull the car over so I could go and sit on a tractor if it was sitting by the side of the road or something like that. And uh, uh, my sort of epiphany moment was uh, when I was uh, 12 years old, a buddy of mine who was crazy about Mustangs uh, finally pointed it out. It was sitting behind this guy's shed. Come to find out many years later, it was actually a 67 GT500 Shelby that was all on jack stands, uh, painted uh, primer from head to toe. Uh, but just the shape of that car uh, really uh, was, uh, was that moment in time where it, it, the bug really bit. Favorite matchbox or Hot Wheel? I actually had, it was funny, it was a blue Maverick that had a big spoiler on the back, but if you lifted the hood, it had dual four-barrel carburetors underneath the hood. <laughs> Whereabout did you grow up? Uh, Colorado. Uh, my, my folks have got a dude in Guest Ranch uh, outside of Loveland, Colorado, so uh, I went, uh, went to school at CSU in Fort Collins, so uh, Colorado's my hometown. First car that you had, or what was your first car? Well, my very first car uh, was uh, after I got done with uh, my uh, uh, Shelby moment there. I, I pestered my dad for several years in a row, kind of gave him the Chinese water torture until he finally uh, uh, succumbed and uh, uh, co-signed on a loan for me. And at 15 and a half, which in Colorado you can get your provisional driver's license, 
I, I somehow conned him into signing for a 1970 Mach 1. Uh, which is kind of like uh, you know letting kids play with nitroglycerin uh, as uh, pouring gas on a fire. And of course, the minute I got my Mach One, uh, I was never at home anymore. And uh, six months later, my folks uh, decided that it was time to try something different. So they uh, they uh, they re they revoked my my uh, Mach One and granted me the license to my grandfather's my excuse me my great grandfather's uh, 1963 Ford Galaxy, which I still have to this day. Do you really now a Mach One? Do you still have? Do you know where that is? Because one of the questions I always ask people is the car you wish that you've had that you wish you could get back somehow. Would that be it? Uh, you know, I don't know where my very very first car was. Uh, it'd be fun to probably know. I don't even know if it still exists or alive. But uh, I've got uh, plenty of them now. Several Mach Ones. Uh, I race my Boss 302 uh, in vintage Trans Am racing. I've got uh, two GT 350s that we race uh, in uh, B production uh, for the Group Six uh, uh, competition. And then I've got uh, one of only two FIA uh, 1969 uh, Shelby uh, GT 500s that I vintage race also. So in addition to my show cars, my race cars, I've, I've uh, certainly scratched my Mustang itch. <laughs> Talk about the cars you have now. How many? And, and give us an idea aside from some of the ones you mentioned. Oh, gosh, it's kind of ever an evolving herd. Of course, uh, when Josephine and I got together, uh, uh, she being a, a first-generation Sicilian, uh, we have a lot of Italian cars in, in our stable now. We've got uh, a number of uh, Ferraris, Lamborghinis, those types of things. We were fortunate enough to uh, uh, display our uh, Cabriolet uh, Series uh, 2 uh, in Pebble Beach in 2012. That was a very exciting bucket list moment. Um, uh, I'm probably best known for the Boss 429 that uh, Josephine let me park in our living room. Uh, Seriously? Still, yep, yeah, it's, uh, as long as my guests don't use it as a coaster for their cocktails, uh, it, it still resides in our living room, yes. Now, wait a minute. I, I'd like to know how you broached her on that. I mean, it's not every day you can go to your wife and say, uh, Honey, uh, I, like, I just bought a car. Can I put it in the... Can we move the couch? Well, uh, it started off, we were looking at houses, and we walked into this one place, and it was like a football field, and uh, I said, wow, you could park a car in here, and she said, oh, that sounds kind of cool, and I thought, wow, okay, that was my moment. You have the best wife ever. I, I tell people that all the time. It, it's not cool that I parked a car in my living room. It's cool that my wife allowed me to park a car in my living room. When you guys got together, was she a car person to begin with? Oh, yeah. Yeah, her very first car was an E-Type Jag, if you can believe that. Uh, E-Type Roadster in Phoenix, of all places. Uh, and uh, and then uh, she went on to uh, the very first car that she bought new was her uh, 246 Dino. Uh, purchased at Ferrari of San Francisco. All right, you see so many cars on a on a show basis. I mean, I, I can just ima can't imagine how many cars you see. Is there one car in your stable that you haven't gotten yet that's number one on the Drew Alcazar, I want that car badly list. <laughs> there's, a, there's a long list of cars that uh, fall under that category. I think uh, I'm still trying to find my Mira SV. Uh, I know it exists out there. I just haven't found it quite yet. And uh, I think uh, I'm starting to really sharpen up my sights on trying to get uh, the 275 GTB4 cam that uh, I, I've always wanted. That, that, to me, is an iconic Ferrari, and I think it's, uh, it's getting about time to uh, get that in the herd. Russo and Steel Auctions, Drew Alcazar. You can check out where the next Russo and Steel auction will be 
by going to RussoAndSteel.com. Hey, if you like what we're doing and you're listening on iTunes, number one, subscribe. It's free and you'll automatically get notified when a new show uploads. Then rate us and write us a review. If you're listening on SoundCloud, like us, follow us, and then tell your car pals and fellow car club members about all the great guests and cool stories that we have on our Talking About Cars podcast. Also, check out our videos with our partners at Generation Auto. Head over to YouTube, look up Generation Auto, no space between Generation and Auto. Until next week, I'm Randy Cardoon. Join me as we have some fun talking about cars.